Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the first chapter of The Big Dive by Bruce Most. It's read by local actor Sean Hopper. The Big Dive was published in July of 2019 by Big Sleep Press and is available for purchase. By the way, if you'd like to help support this podcast, listen for details in the closing of this episode on how to become a patron and get some fun perks. The Big Dive features hard-boiled cop Joe Stryker, who patrols the mean streets of post-World War II Denver. In his debut in Murder on the Tracks, Joe surreptitiously solved a series of high-profile murders, embarrassing his police department superiors and nearly getting himself killed in the process. Eighteen months later, he is keeping his head down, trying to stay in the good graces of the department, and his wife, Paula, who hates his being a patrol cop, especially now that they have a young child, Olivia. But... Trouble has a way of finding Joe. In this opening chapter, Joe and his shift partner, Benedict Green, who's been unusually moody and edgy lately, investigate what appears to be a run-of-the-mill break-in at a pawn shop. It is anything but. Joe's world is quickly turned upside down by a brutal murder. Once again, he must conceal his investigation from his wife and a corrupt police department, putting his life and marriage at risk, all while dodging a homicide detective hell-bent to pin the crimes on Joe. His investigation uncovers a ring of dirty cops, and a dark secret that goes back to the shameful Japanese-American internment camps of the war. Chapter 1 Denver is still a nickel town, the way I figure it. Maybe Chicago or Boston can get away with jacking the price of a tune from a nickel to a dime, but I sure as hell ain't gonna drop a dime to hear Frankie Lane warble mule train. I plugged in my nickel and punched B4 on the Wurlitzer, a glowing red, green, and blue monster bigger than the front end of a beer truck. Billy Holiday came on singing, Taint nobody's business if I do. I returned to the counter at Al's diner, adjusted my Sam Brown belt, and settled on the stool next to my shift partner. He didn't act any more sociable than when I'd left. One of his meaty hands stirred his untouched coffee the spoon clinking against the cup. Benedict Green had been staring into his coffee for weeks now, chewing on something. He was more sullen than usual tonight. Edgy, too, as if whatever was on his mind was coming to a boil. This wasn't his pattern. We'd partnered for the past five months, and I'd known him several years before that. He's an upbeat guy by nature, which is something, considering he's a cop. Then again, the war shadows Benedict, as it does many of us. 
He'd fought in the bloody Battle of the Bulge in the snowy forests of Belgium. Perhaps those nightmares had returned to haunt him. God knows, the war still haunts me. I considered asking what was gnawing on him, but figured it wasn't my place. Only civilians and rookie cops ask where they have no call to ask. If it were my place to know, Benedict would tell me. Good partners are that way. If something is worth telling, they'll tell each other before they tell anyone else, even their wives. So I left him stirring his coffee and reread the shocking black headline plastered on the front page of a well-thumbed copy of the morning Rocky Mountain News. Truman fires MacArthur. The bony finger of the fry cook appeared and tapped the newspaper. The Taft folks are talking impeachment, he said approvingly behind his stained white apron as Billy sang the blues. Put Truman in jail with them Rosenbergs. Now, it wasn't a smart move firing a war hero like Douglas MacArthur. The Tafties were itching to impeach Harry Truman, and now was their shot. Not that I blamed the hat man for firing the general. Sure, we need to stand tough against the commies, but the general wanted to invade China for God's sake against his president's orders. Sounded like a nightmare to me. MacArthur had been disloyal to his own commander, and I detested disloyalty. On the other hand, I wasn't buying into this limited police action crap. Hell, we could be bogged down in those bloody Korean hills forever. War and life were clearer back when Benedict and I fought in the big one. We had a well-defined mission. Kick the little corporal's butt to hell, along with his puppets in Italy and Japan. Nothing limited about what we were doing. Unconditional surrender or die. But in Korea... All we seemed to be fighting for was a dumb line on a map. Maybe the Tafties were right. Foreign wars were like the measles, something you got over as quickly as possible. I finished my coffee. We'd taken our short five long enough. Time to get back to the streets. I stood to leave. Benedict glanced at his watch for the umpteenth time tonight and rose. His coffee remained untouched, but he slid a nickel under his saucer. He always paid for his coffee. No self-respecting cop pays for his coffee. It's an unwritten code on the street. But that was Benedict for you. Saint Benedict, cops called him behind his back. A regular choir boy. He never took free meals, cut-rate car repairs, free cigs to smoke or sell, juice from bookies and bondsmen. The harmless goodies that keep hard-working, underpaid cops and their families above water. 
He always made me feel a little guilty for not paying for my coffee. But someone needed to make the barkeeps, tamale vendors, and shop owners feel they were getting a little extra protection, an extra rattle on their doorknobs, in turn for a free bottle of milk for the kids, or a hot tamale on a bitter January night. I shrugged toward the fry cook in apology for my partner's saintly behavior, and we hit the street in our patrol car. A black, three-year-old Ford, already on its last legs. Benedict drove, a half-smoked old gold clamped in the middle of his lips as we crawled deeper into five points, or what the locals called the Harlem of the West. We passed the Roxy Theater, its marquee glittering as a handful of people lined up to watch Destry Rides Again. Being a Wednesday, the street wasn't crowded, but on weekends, there was no room to walk on the sidewalks. We passed blocks of stately Victorian homes, owned by doctors rubbing elbows with row houses, owned by Pullman porters. The sad sounds of jazz drifted out of the ex-servicemen's club. Benedict took in none of this. His eyes stared dead ahead, never glancing to either side, never scouring car tags or hot heaps or faces for once. Some mope could be jack-rolling a drunk for shoes and change, and Benedict would have missed it. Luckily, the April twilight was crisp and dry, keeping down the tempers on the streets and in the back rooms. Just the usual barflies, monty men, and hookers drifting in and out of the pool halls and jazz joints, their dark faces scowling at us as we passed. A beer bottle shattered on the sidewalk. Two men argued over a raggedy coat. The usual. At 9.14, we caught a call of a female screaming in one of the newer two-story brick-faced projects on Stout. A Mexican gandy dancer had been fired by Burlington Railroad and was taking it out on a bottle of cheap gin and his overweight wife. By the time we arrived, the bottle was empty and the wife insisted life was just peachy despite a right eye resembling something worked over by Jake LaMata. She must have been listening to Billie Holiday. Benedict returned to the patrol car while I hung around the building for a few minutes, picking up Skinny and handing a family a sawbuck that a gin mill owner juiced me with the previous night. When I returned to the car, Benedict had already filled out the log sheet, fastened to a clipboard, and was scribbling in his dime-store pocket notebook. He never told me what he wrote in his brown notebook. Names of snitches, a grocery list, poetry for all I knew. He glanced at his watch, again, as if he had somewhere more important to be. We took a smoke break with another cruiser from Precinct 52 behind K.K. Miyamoto's fine photography studio, Later, cruising by the dark, silent South Platte River bottom, among the warehouses and railroad tracks, 
Benedict finally got around to speaking what was on his mind. We got this little deal going, Joe, he said in a low voice, with another glance at his watch. When he didn't say anything more, I said, What do you mean, a little deal? Something we thought you'd want to be a part of. There's some scratch in it for you. From this deal? Yeah. So what's the deal? I pressed. It's kind of hard to explain. Try me, Benedict. I'm a bright guy. He fell silent. I came at it from a different angle. Who's we? Some guys. What guys? You know, our kind. It was as if he were digging for words in a junk drawer. Cops? I'm not explaining this well. <laughs> Benedict, you ain't explaining it at all. Let me show you, Joe. You'll understand after I show you. He drove us several blocks to a dark alley between Arapaho and Curtis. As we eased into the alley, he doused the headlights, rolled down his window, and listened as we crept through the narrow canyon between the backs of small, tired businesses. Grit and broken glass crunched under the tires. A third of the way, Benedict stopped and flicked on the spotlight. Its beam snared a junkyard dog, rooting in an overturned rusty barrel. The dog yanked its head out. A white sack muzzled its snout. It glared at us, sick yellow eyes glistening in the spotlight, holding them on us before slinking off into the darkness, the sack still clinging to its snout. Benedict drove on before stopping mid-alley between a furniture store and a pawn shop. The furniture store looked fine on my side, but the security light above the rear door of the pawn shop was busted out. Benedict painted the spotlight across the building, snaring barred windows, a no-parking sign, peeling paint, and a heavy door with a small, grimy window. Above the window, white lettering spelled out, Lenny's Loan and Music Co. Use front entrance. You got a tip about Lenny's? I said. Half the stuff he sells is stolen. My partner's eyes were large and jittery. That's the beauty of it. The beauty of what? He killed the spotlight, drove a few feet beyond the door, and stopped. See something? I said. Wait here. He slid out and eased his door closed. He walked behind the car to the pawn shop. Normally, Benedict walked stiffly, spine erect trying to appear taller than he was. Now he walked with his back hunched, his muscular shoulders rolled up tight, his head 
glancing side to side. He looked small in the alley. I peered out the rear window. The pawn shop door was ajar. I scrambled out of the car, the interior light spilling into the empty alley, highlighting me like a target. I eased the door shut. Benedict! The door! I half whispered. He stopped and waved me off. Someone's busted into the place, I said. Don't worry about it. His voice low but not hushed. What do you mean, don't worry? Trust me. He merged into the shadows of the pawn shop and pulled the door farther open. Hinges screeched like lost souls. He scanned the alley in both directions. Benedict, what the hell are you doing? Wait for me. Stay. Keep your eyes peeled. Peeled for what? Anything unusual. Swell. He disappeared into the dark building. Damn. I stood in the alley, eyes peeled as Benedict had instructed. Peeled for what? A burglar? And Alki looking for a place to sleep off his muscatel? Other cops? For God's sake, Benedict and I were the good guys. Why did I feel like a juvie stealing his first car? I started toward the pawn shop. Grit crunched under my thick-soled shoes. I froze. The sounds of cars passing the ends of the alley echoed between the buildings. A rooftop exhaust fan hummed. The alley reeked of rotting garbage and dog crap. I trusted Benedict more than any cop on the force. He not only was by the book, he was fearless, and better yet, a smart cop. He carried a sixth sense, knew who to shake down and when. He worked hard, unlike more than a few slacker uniforms I knew. In six years, he'd earned more citations and commendations than Audie Murphy. The only reason he wasn't a detective by now was he preferred working the streets. So what the hell was he doing in... A sharp noise caught my ear. I reached for my thirty-eight special. Benedict emerged from the pawn shop lugging an enormous cabinet radio. Two men would have struggled with it, but he carried it to the car on his own. He set it down by the trunk. What the hell are you... He raised a hand. Shh! The burglar left this behind. I brought down my voice. What burglar? What the hell are you doing, Benedict? You can't... Ellen's been wanting a nice radio like this. He touched the dark wood cabinet. A Stromberg Carlson, if I wasn't mistaken. They build some fancy ones. Our Crosley is on the fritz. Can't miss life of Riley. 
This one's a combination radio and phonograph. Plays those new long play records. He was talking fast now, his words slamming into each other like boxcars on a fast-breaking train. There's more of this, Joe. I know where we can get more of this. That swell, Benedict. Really swell. Is this the deal you were peddling? Is this how I pick up a few extra bucks? Burglarizing stores? He laughed uneasily. <laughs> it's okay, Joe. It's not like we kicked in the door. We're just taking a little extra. Like you said, half the stuff in Lenny's is stolen. He ain't gonna squeal. I looked up and down the alley, and back at Benedict, and back at the pawn shop. I don't believe this. Not from you, of all people. Nobody's gonna find out. His voice carried less conviction than my racing heart. If somebody shows up, we tell them we found the place kicked in, and this in the alley. That doesn't make it right, Benedict. What am I going to do, arrest my own damn partner? A stupid, uneasy grin cut across his shadowed face. You wouldn't do that, Joe. You're one of us. He tried to look me in the eye as he said it, but couldn't. You recognize a good deal when you see it. It's perfect. Who's gonna believe a cop took this stuff? If it's so perfect, Benedict, why do you look so nervous? Why do you believe I'd go for this? He said nothing. He stared up and down the alley as if we were being watched. Who else you got in on this deal, Benedict? Who's the we? I'll explain everything in a minute. Wait here. I gotta get one more thing. He headed for the rear door. I went after him, but he raised a hand like a traffic cop. Just wait. He tossed the car keys toward me. I missed them in the gloom and they splattered to the cracked cement. Put the radio in the trunk, he said as I picked up the keys. I got a place where we can stash it later. I straightened up. I'm not going to do that. Put the thing back. He was nearly to the pawn shop, back into its shadows. He stopped and said in a banked voice, I can't. Why the hell not? I'm sorry, Joe. He said, his voice somber. I have no choice. He stepped through the entrance, pulled the door nearly shut behind him, and was gone. I stood in the alley, unsure what to do, stunned by my partner's actions. Yeah, yeah, cops are supposed to arrest guys lugging stolen radios out of a store. It's our sworn duty. But this thief was a cop, and cops don't do that to each other. Not if you want to remain a cop. More than a fellow cop, 
Benedict was my partner. That made him as close to me as my wife. I saw more of him most days than I saw of Paula and our daughter Olivia. We held each other's lives in our hands every day. What the hell was I going to do? Tell him to come out with his hands up? Draw my gun and go in after him? Call dispatch and tell them the most honest cop on the force just burglarized a pawn shop and would they please send over a couple of squad cars? I stared at the rear door. Through the grimy window, the interior was pitch black. Between the passing cars and the hum of the rooftop fan, I couldn't hear anything inside either. The radio loomed larger than ever in the bleakness of the alley. I'd heard the rumors. Every cop on the force had heard them. Dirty cops. Dark riders. Cops who helped themselves to more than free lunches, free cigs, and a little scratch under the table. Cops who burglarized restaurants and hardware stores. Cracked safes carted off merchandise before owners arrived after a real thief hit a place. Cops even operating in rings. None had been arrested, and I suspected most of the rumors weren't true. Still, you can always count on a few being bad. I just didn't figure Benedict Green for one of them. I paced the alley in both directions in the cool night air, alert for what I had no idea. Where the hell was he? He said he'd only be a minute, and several had already passed. Any moment I expected to see him carting out a kitchen appliance, or shotguns, or another radio. Then what? I wasn't a thief. I couldn't let it ride. I wasn't one of the we, whatever he thought of me. Yet, I couldn't bring myself to arrest him. Maybe I could talk him into putting it back. Maybe there was a simple, innocent explanation to all of this. Impatient, I strode toward the pawn shop ignoring the crunching glass. I pulled my flashlight from my belt and ran its beam up and down the door. Someone had jimmied it open with a pry bar. My partner was not that someone. Then why insist no one had broken in? No need to worry. I drew my gun from my holster and flattened myself against the wall. Cool, rough brick dug into my back. Benedict! I whispered through the ajar door. No response. Louder this time. Benedict! My mouth went dry. Silence. I pushed the door farther open. The hinges groaned. I leveled my gun chest high. Benedict, where are you?
A passerby at either end of the alley could have heard me, but I didn't care. Is this a damn joke? It ain't funny. No response. Benedict, get the hell out of there. Screw the radio, let's just get the hell out of here. Silence. Time to make a decision, and it wouldn't be to call dispatch. I scanned the alley, sucked in a deep breath, and pushed the door farther open, ignoring the shrieking hinges. I flicked off the flashlight and slipped through the doorway. I stopped and let my eyes adjust to the darkness. Benedict! I said loudly. No sounds. Even the mice weren't moving. I held my flashlight out at arm's length and flicked it on. No shots rang out. I was in a back room. A desk with ledgers. Pawn tickets pinned to a wall along with a pinup calendar two years out of date. Shelves cluttered with hawked items not ready for sale. A small workbench for repairing pawn. A wall clock ticked 1044. A whiff of cleaning solvents and scorched coffee mixed with the smell of my own sweat. I crept to the open doorway between the back room and the showroom. An exterior neon sign at the front of the pawn shop flickered red and green off two scratched glass cases of jewelry running down the center of the room. Guns, musical instruments, army surplus, toasters, sewing machines, radios and record players, brass table lamps, clocks, leather jackets, and a mishmash of other pawn crammed the narrow aisles and cluttered the walls. A car passed on Curtis, headlights momentarily brightening the interior, highlighting a shattered side case. Benedict! Only my raw breathing answered. The cold heaviness of my gun filled my hand. My flashlight combed the shadows for the slightest movement, my ears alert for the faintest of sounds, for breathing for any hint Benedict was okay, or someone lying in wait. Nothing. I sucked in another deep breath and stepped into the room, ducking behind the end of one of the center cases. I panned my flashlight across the side case with the broken glass. The beam caught a small pile of watches scattered on the linoleum floor, spotted with a dark liquid. My flashlight moved, then froze. The sole of a heavy shoe stared at me several feet beyond the watches. I inched the light. A second sole, this one worn unevenly along one side of the shoe. My hand shook as I panned the light up the legs. The body lay sprawled on its back. A uniformed body. 
Something long and wicked protruded from the middle of the chest. Benedict! I scrambled to his side and touched his neck for a pulse. A sticky wetness clung to my fingers. I jerked my hand back and shined my flashlight on his neck. Someone... Someone hateful and ugly had slashed my partner's throat. I focused my flashlight on his chest. The killer had buried a large, black-handled knife in it. I pressed a wrist with my fingertips, holding no hope of finding a pulse. Blood drained in all directions, even under the glass case. I put my ear to his mouth and my hand on his chest, avoiding the knife sticking out of it, straining to hear a sound or feel a beat. Nothing but my own desperate breathing. I felt his dime store notebook in his breast pocket, the one he'd scribbled in earlier in the evening. I tugged it out. The knife had narrowly missed piercing it. Blood stained the edges of the pages. I slipped it into my pocket next to my own notebook and slumped against the glass case. The backroom clock ticked distantly, slightly out of rhythm. It was happening again. Dear God... It was happening again. This reading of The Big Dive was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. Now be aware we did change up some things of the language in the reading to make the story more PG. You can learn more about this book and the author on his website, brucewmost.com. If you'd like to help us to be able to continue to bring you more mystery fun, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash kingsriverlife. Even a dollar a month can make a difference. We also have some cool merchandise available on Redbubble. Check the show notes for the link and for the links to our websites and social media. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter for bonus content. And if you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it, as this helps make us easier for others to find. Until next time, this is your announcer, Jim Tuck, wishing you a life full of mystery.